Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. This season, we're discussing how the Bible speaks to Asian American biblical scholars and how the church shapes and informs their scholarship. I'm Jeanette Oak, your host. Thank you so much for joining us. everyone and welcome to Centering, where we talk about all the things related to Asian American Christian life and living out Asian American Christian faith. I am particularly excited about this season of Centering because it focuses on the theme of biblical scholarship in the church. Uh, so as your hosts, I want to introduce you to a diversity of cutting edge Asian American biblical scholars and ask them how their work is shaped by and geared for or is for the church. How does their research and expertise actually reach us and impact our understanding of God and interpretation of the Bible. So to help us explore these questions, I've invited my good friend, Dr. Eka Pucha Tupamahu. So Eka is Assistant Professor of New Testament at Portland Seminary and George Fox University. And he also directs the master's programs there. He has a broad range of academic interests, including the politics of language, race, ethnicity, theory, post-colonial studies, immigration studies, critical study of religion, and global Christianity, particularly Pentecostal and charismatic movements. All these interests inform and influence the way he approaches the texts of the New Testament and the history of early Christian movements. His current book project entitled Contesting Languages, Heteroglossia, and the Politics of Language in the Early Church just came out in October 2022, published with Oxford University Press, and is generating a lot of interest and well-deserved buzz. His other writings have appeared in, among others, the Journal for the Study of the New Testament, NUMA, the Journal of the Society for Pentecostal Studies, the Indonesian Journal of Theology, the Asian Journal of Pentecostal Studies, Encyclopedia of Christianity in the Global South, Global Renewal Christianity, and the TNT Clark Handbook of Asian American Biblical Hermeneutics. He serves as a member of two steering committees currently, Paul and Politics and the Asian and Asian American Hermeneutics Program Units at the Society of Biblical Literature. He is a New Testament editor for the Currents in Biblical Research Journal. Eka formerly worked as a pastor of an Indonesian congregation in Redlands, California, and from 2014 and 2018, he was a worship pastor at Connection Point Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And so Eka, you come with a wealth of experience in ministry and in academia and administration, and it's, it's wonderful to see you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So congrats on your new book. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm sure there's, you know, it's, it's receiving lots of well-deserved attention. And I, I'm really excited to hear about this book. Like, can you tell us what it's about, why you wrote it, why we should read it? Yeah, that book was, uh, first of all, it was the, my dissertation project when I was at Monterey University. One of the things that I was thinking through at the time, what should I write? I mean, that's one of the questions that people in the Academia, academia would have to think about, right? What should I write for my dissertation? And, you know, uh, do I need to spend my two, three years of my life thinking about something that is not relevant at all to my life and my context and my struggle and things like that? Mm -hmm. So when I was thinking through that, um, I was attending a, a Forum for Theological Exploration, FTE Summit. At the time, it was in Everton in Illinois um, at Garrett Evangelical. And the first day I, I remember, uh, you know, we were uh, asked to think about what are the obstacles, what are the challenges that scholars of color are facing in academia. 
And I still remember uh, the, you know, we were divided into groups and my group was with uh, Professor Anjo from uh, Garrett. And, you know, I, you know, one of the things that I was thinking through at the time is the linguistic barrier mm. that becomes a lot of challenge, a serious challenge for, for many people of color, particularly general uh, immigrants who work in the United States. It can, it can become a serious challenge to them. And Professor Joe basically said that instead of thinking about or forcing, this is what she said, instead of forcing, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, right? Before, uh, instead of fo forcing or insisting that uh, scholars of color have to you know, speak English better like you know their white counterparts, why don't we think of ways in which we decolonize you know, English? Mm -hmm. decolonized imperial language. So that really triggered uh, the sort of the, you know, intellectual imagination in me. Mm. And at the same time, you know, another force or another aspect of me, so I grew up in Coastal, right? So, uh, you know, yeah. I've heard a lot of speaking in tongues and speaking in tongues, but, you know, as a Pentecostal, we always understand speaking in tongues as sort of a, you know, unintelligible sort of, you know, uh, you know, people rolling on the floor and basically, you know, pronounced gibberish, right? Uh, and it's it's been often understood that way. But when I read uh, the biblical text again, over and over again, I found out like the word glossa in Greek mm -hmm. actually means language, right? Uh, I mean, it's used all over the place in Greek literature as, as language. The word phone, right? It means language too. I begin to look into this and why in the world does phrase speaking in tongues somehow becomes, you know, speaking in unintelligible speech, right? Or whatever, in unintelligible expressions. So that that triggers the whole inquiry into the politics of language in the in, in, in the New Testament. Not many foreign words in the New Testament. We have some Aramaic and Hebrew expressions in, in the New Testament, but not many. It's mainly written in Greek. I, I don't see it as a, at that level, at that sort of linguistic differences level, but mainly at that discursive level, mm. how they see themselves in light of the relationship with, with linguistic diversity in Asia Minor or in the in a Mediterranean world at the time. So I found like this particular expression speaking in terms can be a site in which we examine how the early Christians, particularly Paul and also Luke and you know the longer ending of Mark, how do they see themselves in light of this? So that's the, st the start of everything. And mm. I found out that um, I, I begin to do a trace of uh, interpretation from the early stage of like second century, third century, all the way to about 18th century, the, the, the trace of the reception of this particular text, particularly 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Mm. And what's interesting is that almost everyone, if I, you know, maybe I could say everyone, okay, uh, from the early stage to about so about um, 18th century would read speaking in tongues and speaking in many languages. In many languages? In many languages. As opposed to a specific kind of language. As opposed to specific, specific ecstatic experience. Ecstatic spiritual language, right. Okay. Yes. So this is actually a multilingual phenomenon. Mm. 
But then the change began to take place in by uh, around late 19th century, mm. in which uh, German scholars begin to question the established opinion at the time that this is a linguistic experience, a linguistic phenomenon, speaking tongues. In the 19th century, late 18th century, uh, I know a German scholar named uh, Johann Herder, which is uh, which was a, a key thinker, a German thinker in German nationalism and German romanticism. So it was very interesting because German uh, nationalism was rooted, particularly in the 19th century, was rooted in German romantic philosophy. Uh, so he's the key thinker. He's the student of Immanuel Kant, and he has a essay questioning, basically questioning the the validity of the idea that uh, speaking in tongues is a linguistic phenomenon. So after I I look into his writings and studying his his philosophy of language of how he thinks language is uh, originated in human feelings, which is part of the sort of, uh, you know, the uh, idea of German romanticism is the feeling, right? So nationalism is marked by unification of language. Right. Why? Because, you know, it's a shared human feelings, you know, shared communal feeling. What happened is that he questioned and he said that, you know, as the these Jewish people as a people, as das folk, as a, you know, as an ein folk, as a people, cannot speak different languages. They don't need to speak different languages, just speak one language. So he rejected the idea that this is a multilingual phenomenon. And then he inserted the idea of uh, tongues is, uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know, an explosion of excitement and human feeling in, in it. So he, he, mm. he, he in, inject that idea of feeling into our reading of speaking in tongues. Mm. And then, but he argues that this is probably a poetic language. Why? Because for him, poetic language is the language that engages human feeling. That's the highest level of language for him or highest le level of production of language, right? So the more language engages human feeling, the, the, the higher language is for him, for Johan Hurst. So he argues that in tongues in the New Testament is probably, you know, this, this sort of, uh, you know, human sort of what do you call it, the, the poetic language. But then in the 19th century, you have this explosion of German scholarship in which by the end of 19th century, human feelings have already taken place of all the readings of the tongues in which it's no longer language, but it's just an, a gibberish, and, and, you know. Like ecstatic, ecstatic. Yeah, rhapsodic expression. Yeah. It was already established in, in German scholarship by the end of 19th century, before the coming of the Pentecostal movement in the early 20th century. Mm. Uh, you know, if you read early Pentecostal literature, they still think that this is a linguistic phenomenon. Mm. Right? Okay, so basically, in your study of the reception history mm -hmm. of speaking in tongues, you have learned for a long time, it was just understood as a linguistic phenomenon, a diversity of languages. Yeah. But it became like in the 19th century to be thought of as more of injected with the idea of feeling like a highest, like a poetic kind of language. And that's tied with nationalistic uh, ideology. Yeah. This idea yeah. of one nation, one language, yeah. one feeling, yeah. the spirit of a nation. Yeah. Yeah. And that human feeling got moved into actually ecstatic, episodic gibberish. Yeah. Or at spiritual language yeah. at the end of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And then when the Pentecostal movement really started to, to rise, is that where it kind of comes together? Mm -hmm. So basically, you know, 
in, 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 at the level of scholarship, it seems like by the end of the 19th century, scholars have already settled that this is not a linguistic phenomenon. Okay. Right. And then That's the Pentecostal right. movement came, and Pentecostals still, at, in the beginning, still think that this is a linguistic phenomenon because, you know, this is, you know, many Pentecostals still follow sort of pre-modern understanding mm-hmm. of this particular text. But then, you know, biblical scholars in by the 1960s and 50s, 60s, particularly, you know, um, with all the respect I have with you know, Gordon Fee, but Gordon Fee spent many pages in his uh, commentary defending the idea that this is not a linguistic phenomenon. Why do you? Th- why is it important for Fee to do that? Why do you think? I, you know, I feel like maybe he's been influenced by German scholarship in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. Even Pentecostals begin to switch from understanding this as a linguistic phenomenon to the the, the, the gibberish. You know. So you're trying to reclaim that meaning of it as an, a linguistic phenomenon? So I, I reclaim the idea that this is not just a, a spiritual linguistic experience mm-hmm. in which you know, you're know you given a sort of a miraculous sort of sudden ability to speak in different languages. I would say that what happened in First Corinthians is just a normal multilingual phenomenon. Can we take a look at First Corinthians 14? Yeah, yeah, sure. Take us there and show us, flesh this out for us a little bit. Yeah, let's see First Corinthians chapter 14, right? Uh, so for instance, like this, when Paul says that pursue love and strife for the spiritual gifts, first one, right? Um, for those who speak in tongue, in a tongue, this is an interesting phenomenon because a tongue do not speak in other, to other people, but to God. So um, here it's, in my interpretation, or my reading of this is that Paul is, is saying that, you know, if you speak a foreign language, a tongue here, you don't speak to other people. You speak to God. So meaning mm-hmm. to say other people don't understand. So Paul Paul wants to make sure. So for Paul, when Paul says that we speak, when you speak in tongues, nobody understands. In Greek, it clearly nobody hears. So it's the hearers. It's the, the, the dominant group of people don't understand that. Mm-hmm. If you speak that, you only speak to God. If you speak in, in a worship gathering, whatever, you know. So he's he's saying that this is, and then for nobody understand them. In, in Greek, it's actually nobody here. So for so nobody to understand doesn't mean that that language is ununderstandable. Nobody understands because the people don't understand. Mm-hmm. And this interpretation, Eka, assumes then there's a, quite a lot of diversity within the congregations itself. Like, yeah, in, in if, in so, Corinth. Yeah, that's why I need to establish the case in chapter two of my book that we can reimagine Corinth as a multilingual space. Why? Because Corinth itself in the first century had a lot of immigrants coming from all over the place in the Mediterranean world um, yeah, to, to Corinth. So it's understandable that, you know, people would speak their language. Like in, it's very much connected to my experience as an immigrant in the United States. When I get together, you know, in an English speaking space, if somebody, if an Indonesian show up and I would like just switch my language altogether. Would it be then safe to say then that to, when they prophesy, they're prophesying in the dominant language of this group? So, so and in chapter three, I argued that in my book, I argued that the distinction between tongues and prophecy mm-hmm among other distinctions that Paul made, is the distinction between understandable and ununderstandable language. So, so prophecy is a speech that is given in, in the dominant language, whereas tongues is the speech that is given or made in minority languages. Mm-hmm. And Paul silences altogether. Paul said that, you know, if you speak in tongues, you have to pray so that, you know, 
um, you will you'll, you'll you'll be able to translate, right? And if you if if it is not translated, then you have to be silent. So there is an forced to silence many of the languages, particularly in First Corinthians chapter fourteen. And what I see is that Paul Paul's behavior here in Corinth in in, in the city of Corinth is not left un, unchallenged, right? So Luke wrote Acts chapter 2, I think, as a competing narrative against Paul. So Luke, Luke argues that, you know, when the Spirit comes, everybody speaks, and it's very interesting because of the Gal, Galileans. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting um, experience. You know, why are these Galileans speak our languages? You know, you know mm -hmm. people are amazed. And I, I find it very interesting because Luke is saying that even like Galileans can speak different languages. So how much more like the Greeks, you know, who speak dominant languages? Why can't they speak different languages? So it's like, it's, to me, it's like a competing narrative. And in that passage, it's more explicit that people are coming from various parts of mm -hmm. and there's a, there's an the world. Whether, yeah, there's an argument whether it is, whether they are diaspora Jews or they are proselytes, right? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and recent scholarship begin you know argue that uh, this is probably a proselytes who come who, who in, in in a way that they actually speak their, their, you know their own languages they come to Palestine and they were amazed to see these Galileans speak different languages but what I'm saying is that the whole point is that uh, so there are two different sort of imagination social imagination that's taking place in in the New Testament one is the Pauline imagination that requires monolingual, uh, monolingual social order for the for 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 church, whereas in Luke and Acts, particularly Acts, the, the, there is an imagination of the opening of space mm. or multiplicity of languages. So, um, so so we can see this over and over again in our society today. How you know some English speaking sort of English uh, only movement would say they don't speak English here. It's just it's very Pauline force in a way. Wow. My mind is spinning. I have lots, so many questions, but I think I want to ask a question for our listeners yeah. that they might, I might anticipate um, wondering, so then how does this land? What, how does this translate to the way we're to put, we're supposed to make sense of first Corinthians 14 and the speaking of tongues? Like, does that mean that people who do speak in tongues, that's in an, an ecstatic utterance today, are they, what do they do with that? For example, yeah, I, I feel like I think there's a, there should there should be another resources or sources to think to that particular phenomenon we call glossolalia. That's why I don't call myself I don't call this phenomenon glossolalia. I call this phenomenon heteroglossia because that's precisely the word that Paul uses. If you read First Corinthians fourteen, when Paul says that by uh, you know this is a quotation from Isaiah, right? Um, Brothers and sisters, do not be children and so on. And in verse 21, it is written, uh, as in the law, it is written by the people of strange tongues. Mm. Interesting. That word is one word in Greek, heteroglossia. That's why I reclaim that term. Mm -hmm. If you see my title, people yeah. don't use that word. But the word is actually in the New Testament, not glossolalia. The word glossolalia is not existing in, uh, in the New Testament. This word, heteroglossia. So we reclaim why? Because this is about multiple languages. So, uh, so if you know, if we want to think this phenomenon of speaking gibberish and things like that, maybe find another source. Don't call it speaking in tongues. Mm. 
because that's not speaking. You want to clarify what, what Paul means by speaking in tongues, specifically in first Corinthians 14. Yeah. And also in acts, acts pretty clear actually, or, or longer uh, ending of Mark and things like that. So, and look, right. Yeah. Because the word glossa, it's very interesting because when scholars claim that this is a, this is a, you know, unintelligible phenomenon, you cannot find any, any parallel in, in, in Greek world, even in mm -hmm. the Hebrew Bible, there's no parallel. Why? Because this is a German 19th century made up, made up interpretation of first Corinthians, right? That's why you cannot find anything. You scramble. I've seen over and over again, scholars scramble around looking for like, you know, speech in Delphi or speech in different places. No, there's you know, Christopher Forbes, Forbes, you know, and uh, an Australian scholar has mm. already shown, has already shown there's no, there's no parallel phenomenon for that particular understanding. So how would this then maybe play into the importance of encouraging heteroglossia in the churches? Yeah, I think what happened, you know, I, I remember uh, when I was in, still in Redlands because Indonesian church um, is, uh, is part of the sort of white church at the time. And, uh, you know, at one point we get together with this main congregation, which is English speaking congregation. And then the pastor asked me to, not ask me, sorry, ask, uh, you know, every like people from different languages to come and stand on the platform, you know, and pray in their own language. And he said, don't translate. Mm. You know, let anybody, do, if you don't understand, that's fine. You know, don't translate. And I remember, it was like many years before, even before I wrote my dissertation or right before even I wrote my, uh, this book. So it was just the most beautiful thing of a strange difference that somehow comes in front of me, right? And I was like, wow. And it's either we see the difference as a threat that, you know, like the Greeks would call, if you don't speak Greek, you're going to be barbarian, right? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, gibberish, yeah. right? You just speak gibberish. Or, or we see we see difference and, you know, strangeness of difference, mm -hmm. right? As the beauty of, of diversity in which people brings different thoughts and ideas in different ways and forms. Yeah. So as the I, beauty that can really build up the church. Yeah, can really build up the church. When we think about the 11th hour of the church, people always think it's, it's yeah, it is the most segregated hours. But we always think of it, think of it in terms of race. Mm -hmm. not but, language but you know in reality another there is another dynamic which is linguistic segregation mm. and then those who speak minority languages in the united states like latin you know spanish speaking korean speaking or you know indonesian mm. speaking tend to be taking space you know if, if, if you, even if you don't have like um, especially particularly when, when you don't have your own place of worship and when you have to be under and you know the dominance of the English-speaking congregation, even in the arrangement of spaces, right? You will get the basement space. Mm. You know, you don't get the what do you call it? The the main uh, sanctuary. Well, right, because the main sanctuary is for English-speaking, and you get this like smaller room in the back of of the of of the church. Even that arrange, spatial arrangement has already told us about the linguistic. Mm our relation between English-speaking community and non-English-speaking community, right? So can we, when we think about what we mean by multicultural church, what do you mean? 
So we always think about we mean everybody would come here and then we just subject everybody into the dominance of English, right? And you know, and if you don't speak English, you're not you're not even getting any space in leadership or in in roles in worship. You just have to speak English. So in a way, everybody who it, it's it, the, the, the erasure, our practice has been always the erasure of difference. And we always think like order can only take place through monolingual structure. Right. So it, it requires a lot of reimagination of space, reimagination of our relationship with you know different languages. And also it it invites discomfort. It invites discomfort, yeah. And I imagine like, you know, when when in the 1960s, when people argue for, for disaggregation, it's very disorienting for any white community. Like how in the world is it, you know, remember the story of Alabama in which people, you know, they stand in, in, in front of the school and then, you know, to, is it Alabama or Mississippi, I forget, uh, you know, that, you know, many people refuse, you know, black kids to be part of the white community. So inviting difference is always very, very disorienting. And I, I imagine linguistic difference is even like very, very disorienting. Why? Because maybe you have your, you know, English speaking people, maybe you need to learn to speak Korean too, right? Mm -hmm. Or to speak Indonesian too. Not only we are speaking English, like we, we force ourselves to memorize English words, to study English language, to speak English words. Why can't you do the same thing too? So I always say the monolingualism, monolingualism is always a privilege that is actually offered by the empire to you. So you can go all over the way. Why? Because the British empire has already expanded this English language all over the world. So you can just pack up your stuff today and then you know, move somewhere else and you force other people to speak your language. It's so easy for you. Mm. Very disorienting, I know. Yeah. yeah, the disorienting race of strange difference, linguistic strange difference yeah I found it over and over again i remember some time ago some of indonesians students in nashville you know they were in the bus and they speak the they spoke indonesian language and before they left the bus a guy came to them and said why don't you speak english here you know because yeah. it's very disorienting for this person yeah mm -hmm. yeah and and i think that it's important to be able to uh, require people to say your name correctly yeah it, it to struggle with inter like trans to to struggle with that linguistic challenge mm -hmm. because it's it's the reality of most of so many people when they're trying to engage in worship and mm -hmm. seminary education or just any kind of education in the United States. That's so true. It's, yeah, true. and and especially for theological education, would it be possible for us to think not only church right? Would it be possible for us to think about? The future of theological education as multilingual space. That's yeah. it's, it's, it's a little bit hard to think because our educational system to to use uh, you know this German sort of French philosopher or historian uh, of thought Michel Foucault, who argues that you know school or education is always the, 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 the sort of the mechanism of power to to discipline discipline us as a society. Yeah. So sometimes the disciplinary power in the school education is to subject us to to uh, to the same language. It's also precisely in the in educational setting, right? Educational I mean, it would also setting. require the amount of what how much time is allocated, right? Yeah. If if three languages, for example, are being spoken in a in a service or in a class, um, that will reduce one person's ability to speak longer. <laughs> 
totally. I mean, technically speaking, right? I mean, that's the truth. And that is, that's an inconvenience of yeah. pedagogy or expertise or who people came to hear. Yeah, um, and it, that's always the argument for that, right? The argument for like, yeah, we, we still need one language in order to organize everything. But I don't, you know, many ling social linguists these days begin to think, no, we, it doesn't have to. It's just because you are so used to that. And children are able to um, hold the complexity of multilingual, multiple languages totally. so much better. We teach them to stop doing that. Yeah, totally. You're right. And then they pick up, they pick up different languages so easily. Right. And there are schools now that are in multiple languages um, where students are being more immersed um, and it's proving yeah. to be quite it's, it's not preventing them from learning both languages well. Yeah. Um, for um, example. You know, immersion programs. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. About, like Spanish immersion, French immersion, you know. Uh, do we have any Korean immersion? I don't know. School. There are some Korean immersions. Yeah. Uh, I think so, so, I mean, the loss of language is so real, especially among immigrant family, uh, communities. You know, and there's a pain around that. There's a, it's a, yeah, it is yeah. a loss. Yeah, I mean, like, right? Everything, every time you think about about grievance and a grief comes always from loss, right? And it creates a lot of sort of social grievance and griefs, not grief, and the griefs um, among immigrants community when they see that kids speak very good English, but stumble around when they begin to speak their own sort of, you know, um, you know, language that they come from. It's just the loss is so real. It's like, you, you don't, uh, uh, very interesting because in, in many research among social linguists, they find out that by the third generation of immigrants, language has already disappeared. Basically, it means like our children is going to subject themselves to English, the dominance of English. Mm -hmm. But what if that church, they were affirmed in that mother tongue of their grandparents or of oh, their parents? Can um, we, that's a big imagine question. what what maybe it would des make them desire to study and learn because it's not going to conveniently take place or easily take place necessarily mm -hmm. for multiple generations. Hey, I'm Daniel Lee, the Academic Dean of Fuller Seminary's Asian American Center. I hope you've been enjoying Centering. Our vision is to provide substantive conversations on topics that really matter to the Asian American Christian community and to others who care about us. This work is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Your contributions help cover the production and editing of this podcast and continue to affirm that this work is important to our community. To support Centering, please visit fuller.edu slash giveaac. Again, that link is fuller.edu slash giveaac. Thank you for listening. finished our PhDs around the same time. And prior to or during our doctoral studies, even we were, we had pastoral experience and did different kinds of things. And so how did you know you wanted to become a biblical scholar? What was your journey like? Yeah, I, I, I grew up in a pastor's family. So, you know, we grew up reading the Bible I mean, as a Pentecostal who really loved Jesus, loved the Bible and things like that. We, Read the Bible every day, basically. That's part of our spirituality. So um, it I begin since I was very small, and then uh, when I after I finished my high school, I went to a Bible school in order to be trained as minister. And it's because I felt really called um, in my heart, in you know, in my life, that I want to uh, be part in church ministry. 
but then, you know, um, I begin to see more and more the need for a scholarly uh, presence, right? Especially in Indonesian context. I'm, I'm talking this as a, from Indonesian. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my experience with the U.S. is how, how many years? Like from 2009 through today. So it's not that much. So the formative formative years were Indonesia. speaking, I was in Indonesia. So I, I saw the need. We have a lot of pastors. We have a lot of worship leaders. We have a lot of liturgies. We have a lot of counselors. We don't have a lot of scholars. Mm-hmm. So I went to the Philippines to do my MD, came back, taught for some years, and then went to Claremont in Southern California to do my uh, master's degree. And in Claremont, there was a time in which I was um, in the intersection whether I want to go for theology major or to go for biblical studies major. Mm-hmm. So I took I took theology classes, and every discussion is about sort of you know white European philosopher. And you know, in a formative year, and now I've read so many of them, but in my formative years, I didn't read Kant or Hegel. The whole conversation becomes strange to me. I don't understand what you're talking about because in my formative years, we didn't read those things, right? So I feel like you know, should I? be in a conversation that I don't belong. So I say, I'm very familiar with the Bible and there's that path to be a biblical scholar. So I took that path. I did a lot of like, you know, took a lot of languages, Syriac, uh, you know, Sahidi, Coptic, Aramaic, (laughs) Greek and Hebrew. At one point I, you know, in a week, I spoke, uh, you know, in Indonesian language in the congregation and then use English in my, you know, and then studied the Hebrew, uh, reading Hebrew with, uh, what is his name, uh, uh, Marvin Sweeney, mm-hmm. right? We had a, like, like Claremont, yeah, right? yeah, to just read Hebrew. And then, you know, uh, study Aramaic and also Sahiri Coptic. So I, I've just so interested in diversity of languages. I, I find like, I find life in that because, you know, when I spoke at the congregation, to preach i didn't preach kant or hegel or you know i preached the text of the new testament and and one of the things that becomes very disorienting at the time when i was in in southern california is that when i was from monday through friday i was thinking about synoptic problem and things like that right you still remember that thank you but when I went to the congregation on on Saturday and Sunday, I didn't even talk about it at all. <laughs> yeah. Now the question is, are they not smart enough to understand these things, or our discourses are so different? Mm-hmm. And so how do you bridge? So did so you wanted to become a New Testament scholar or biblical scholar in order to bridge yeah, that yeah. Dis, dis, this difference? And, I think the, and and the way I I see it is that New Testament scholarship is deeply deeply ingrained profoundly ingrained embedded in a certain social and historical context particularly in in germany in the 19th century almost every discussion we have in biblical scholarship in the 20th century is a footnote to what has already been discussed in the 19th century. Whether we know it or not. Whether we know, and and I find it very fascinating because many people just made the same argument that's already been made in the late 18th century. It's just a repetition. We don't give in footnote. We don't put in any footnote. It's just assumed. It's just assumed because the whole tradition of thought has already been shaped. 
So, okay, the, the big question now, should I force my the people in the congregation to think through the questions that Germans call us asking in the 19th century? That's a big question I was struggling with for years. So when I wrote this book, for instance, I was like, no, I want to bring the concern, the questions of immigrants in the United States to scholarship mm -hmm. and challenge that established notion of trans that has been articulated in the 19th century and bring a, an immigrant's perspective you know, because you know, many of people in my congregation didn't speak English well. Mm -hmm. yes, first generation immigrant, particularly. I mean, how do we bring this concern to scholarship? The, everything that I do now is to precisely to bring this to scholarship. So in a way, scholarship is always contextual, right? That's always contextual. But what context are we, what story that we want to be part of? And 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 the training of biblical scholarship is the training for us to be part of the European story, story of an enlightenment. You know, these people don't understand what enlightenment even is. You know, it's it's a European man's story. You know, you know, enlightenment and and German nationalism and you know what do you call it? Uh, you know, French Revolution around that time and things like that. It's a European story, and it affects the biblical scholarship up to today. Mm -hmm. To me, it feels like a competing narrative, right? Mm -hmm. A competing narrative. So writing from this perspective is like putting a different narrative to the surface, bringing the different narrative to the surface that, hey, there's another narrative that can be told, not from the point of view of the experience of European men in the 19th century, but from the experience of a simple immigrant First generation immigrants who don't have any who don't have political or social capital in the United States to this to the story of biblical narrative, right? Bringing them to the conversation with biblical narratives. I mean, that's so helpful because one of the purposes of this particular season is to really challenge that perceived disconnect. It is a real disconnect for for a lot of people between the work of biblical scholars and the practical needs of people trying to live out their faith. Totally. Right. And, and pastors who are trying to pastor their people and their churches. Mm -hmm. And you are your work, your person, the questions you bring, the challenges you bring, not only to the text and, and, and the insights, but the, to, the, to the work of the biblical scholarship mm -hmm. is doing that. You're bridging that and also trying to make them meet mm -hmm. or hold them accountable or connect them. I mean, yeah. would that be fair to say? Yeah. And, and also at the same time, to open our ears to hear different stories. Right. Right, because it's easy to just follow the dominant stories. It's easy, and then be busy every day thinking about it. Bring in the bring in new narratives, different yeah, narratives. Right? Because we, like, you different me, languages. Yeah, because you and me, we are trained in that way. Right. We are trained to think this way. We are trained to ask that question, and and it's it's so easy to 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 just being drifted by that and basically our identity even being whitewashed in biblical scholarship right how do we open our ears and hear this the voices from the periphery of the society right and i see you doing this not only in this book and in your articles and your class to room teaching but also in your service to yeah. the guild and and, and um, um this, there's this this theme of really bringing voices on the periphery to the center, to centering them. To centering them, you to, yeah. to use deeper chakra, chakra bhaktis uh, expression to, to provincializing Europe, you know, to provincialize Europe. Mm. 
Hmm. Not not the center, but just one of the province in a way. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, But but biblical scholars, you know, I understand very well. Biblical scholars are trained to ask certain questions, to deal with certain questions and certain concerns. And and, and I think we need to look deeper into the root of those questions. Yeah. What gave rise to those questions, right? Okay, so what do Pentecostals do with your reclaiming of speaking tongues as a diverse linguistic phenomenon? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Very good question. I, I always think about it in terms of like the how Pentecostal movement is all over the world today. Yes. It, it's everywhere. And growing. Yeah, I'm going to give a plenary a speak speech at the Society of Pentecostal Studies meeting next year. Mm-hmm. I'm going to think through this, uh, the issue of how do we think about the book of tongues and because tongues is very central to Pentecostal experience. But in terms of this sort of multiplicity of languages, instead of in terms of feeling good and rolling on the on the ground, right? But what is the what is really the socio-cultural uh, linguistic force of tongues? that tongues bring, right? That destabilizes the dominance hmm. uh, of a certain language, certain imperial languages, right? Hmm. If you read the book of Acts, for instance, you know, many, many Pentecostals read the book of Acts as an empowerment for mission. I find it very interesting in reading, empowerment for mission. And I find out it very interesting because many of these scholars are actually missionaries. So they think like the book of Acts is a is a stamp for them to go all over the world and evangelize people and you know empower information, right? But if you read the book of Acts, the, the book of Acts, the movement in the book of Acts is not the movement from the center of the empire to the periphery, it's the other way around. It's actually the movement from the periphery, which are Galileans, right? Mm-hmm. And then the movement all the way go to Rome. So it feels to me, the movement in the book of Acts feels to me more like the movement of people in Central America coming to the U.S., not the white missionaries go all over the world mm-hmm. with the privilege. So it's a different narrative. Like when we pick, what kind of narrative we're going to bring, right? Is the narrative of American missionaries go all over the world, you know, who, you know, in, in many places, they actually live lavish lifestyle, like, you know, in a big house, nice car, and then, you know, people... People live in a in, in a very different life, you know, socioeconomic style than the locals. Uh, that kind of narrative you want to use to read the Book of Acts. Maybe the book, the book of Acts, the movement in the Book of Acts happened often by because of political instability, social instability. So it it feels to me like you know people from Central America from different places come to come to the center of the empire to Rome at the time, which Rome is the center of the political. Uh, you know, sort of geopolitical power in in Mediterranean world at the time. So it's not, so it's a different different kind of movement. Yeah. Well, that lecture is going to be very well attended, Eka. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. I mean, I'm I'm like, I'm still thinking through this. I haven't had like, this is like, I'm just throwing these ideas. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. No, Eka, how do you stay, you know, you're a busy guy and you're doing really creative and interesting things. How do you stay passionate and enlivened in the work that you do? You just have to love what you do. And you just have to find meaning there. Mm. And I, I always tell my 
students and also people who do their doctoral work and things like that. Find something that because your 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 scholar that you're you know you admire like that idea. Find something that you're passionate about. Find something that when you get up in the morning, you get excited about what you're doing. In, mm -hmm. in, otherwise, it's going to kill you in the, in, in, the, in the midst of the, that process because you, your passion is not that you just do something somebody else's passion. Do, so, because scholarship, in a way, has to be something that is relevant, something that is deeply rooted in a contextual struggle, right? And so, do other. work that's deeply meaningful and connected to your own life. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important. To commu the community that, that matters to you. Not, not somebody's interested in that issue in the 19th century. Right. 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 That's not because that issue is invalid. No, that particular question was raised in a particular socio-historical context. That's not probably not your question. But to, to take that down a few notches, like, do you like to hike? Do you, you, I think you're, you're, I know you're an avid runner. <laughs> Is that something you do to decompress? I, I, love, yeah, I love hiking and I still remember, but every time I face like challenge in life, you know, that's the place in which like I find God, you know, like just walk or run through neighborhood or going through trails and, you know, either walk or run. I just like looking at nature. I just find a place of peace. You know, and it really regenerates and rejuvenates me, you know. That kind of activities, uh, I, I, you know, before I defended my dissertation, I walk, went for a walk like, well, I forget how many miles, but it helps tremendously, <laughs> things like that. Yes, yeah. And lastly, can you give some advice to our listeners about how they can delve into deeper study of scripture? I, I think, again, what I want to say is that don't lose yourself in scholarship, Right, because when when you, when we talk about deeper study of scripture, we talk about not only reading the text itself, but also, you know, reading all the conversation around that particular text. Mm -hmm. Don't lose yourself in that in that sort of in that process. You have your agency. I remember I taught New Testament course and I asked them, treat scholars as interlocutors, not as people who tell you what to say about this particular text. Mm. And a student conversation from, partners. Conversation partners. So, you know, a student came to me and said, like, I've never heard about this before. I felt like these people are too smart. I don't have any voice. I said, no, they read the same text. Hmm. No, you have your agency. You have your voice there, you know. And yeah. that's the whole point of multi-languages, like multi-tongues, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, Eka, we could go on and on, but uh, thank you so much for this. It's such an interesting conversation and mm -hmm. it's overturning lots of assumptions and ways of reading a text. Oh, heteroglossia. Heteroglossia, glossolalia, a term that isn't as, isn't as obviously in the text yeah. as we think. I know. I know. And in fact, heteroglossia is there in is 1 there? Corinthians 14. Yeah. And uh, I know that there's going to be lots of discussion, um, multiple, like language, multiple discussions on this really important topic. And so thank you, Eka, for sharing that. Any last thoughts or words before we go? I think we're good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited and, you know, happy to be invited to this conversation. This has been Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. Please tune in each week as we continue to discuss how the Bible speaks to us. And remember, 
God loves and embraces all of who you are. Thank you.